Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brandi Higa, and today is Thursday, October 19th, 2023. We're back this week with Mayor Rick Blangiardi, midway through October. <laughs> but Mayor, this is the final podcast I get with you before All Hallows Eve. What's your favorite Halloween candy? Wow, pizza. <laughs> That's it, pizza. It's always pizza. <laughs> Why don't people serve pizza at Halloween? Where, where did we go wrong? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, my favorite Halloween candy, I like licorice, black licorice. <laughs> yeah, like, what can I tell you? That's old pizza, I always have pizza on the brain, you know? I go, <laughs> Me too, Mayor. Yeah. We have that in common. Um, you know, recently you got to take a look at the new Kaimana Beach showers and water fountain. What makes these two features so significant for your administration? Well, we're really proud of this because it's been talked about for a long time, you know, and that Kaimana Beach is so well used and hopefully it will be even more so now once we really begin some renovations on the natatorium. But that San Susi Beach is really a big local beach. It's been and and I you know, my kids grew up in that beach years ago. And those fountains that we had down there were the same. In fact, really, in the showers was the same. It really wasn't working well at all. And it was always talked about getting it done, and we got it done. That's what makes it special. We got it done. I feel, I'm so pleased and proud of our team. We actually delivered on something that a lot of people use. It's highly functional. You know, you go to the beach, you get sand and salt water and whatever. So it's, and, and, and it means a lot for people to have that. And I, when we were down there the other day, just watching the people and they had the little kids and stuff and they're washing off the sand, even the parents. I talked to a couple of the older people and they were really thankful. It was like, we did a really cool thing getting that done. And there's a lot to be said too about the fact that it is uh, low pressure, right? And yep. it's off the beach. So that helps a lot with runoff. Um, but it's hard to talk about water uh, without thinking about Red Hill. Yes. And the defueling process began this week yes. with that massive tanker at Pearl Harbor that you can see, an important visual. Have you been briefed on the pr procedure and where that fuel goes next and, yes. and what happened? Well, actually, I have been briefed. Last week, I was privileged to spend more than two hours up at Indopaycom. Admiral Wade, who's a three-star admiral in charge of the defueling project, along with Admiral Aguilino, who is the Indopaycom mm -hmm. commander, and a whole bunch of other serious brass in the room, along with the governor and a host of people from, from the state, um, all the stakeholders, if you will, our own Ernie Lau, Board of Water Supply, et cetera. And I absolutely, I thought the, the, the plan that they laid out and all the work and preparation that they've put into um, Red Hill on even with the contingencies on what could possibly go wrong, not to suggest anything will, but when you lay out a plan like that, it does account for that kind of stuff, uh, was brilliant. It was very thorough, I mean, and, uh, and aggressive. You know, they're already a couple of months ahead of time uh, doing it now, starting in the fall. But they, uh, they put their best thinking you know, this is an unprecedented situation. Most people don't realize how big the tanks are, but if I could offer this as a perspective, each of those 20 tanks is bigger than the Statue of Liberty. I try to imagine that. It was built underground in the early 40s. Here, we can't even get a stadium built right. in this day and age. And in the early 40s, they put 20 of these underground over a span of some miles, I think it is. And bigger than the Statue of Liberty, and they've really served well for a lot of years. It's unfortunate what happened, but you know, many people who are historians, war historians, or just people who know what they ought to know about, about all of that, um, Red Hill won World War II. 
in the Pacific Theater. It really did. And, and, and it made all the difference in what we did. So they have a great storied past. It's unfortunately that, you know, what's happened, you know, they got the whole issue of Red Hill now has become so maligned, if you will. But those tanks played a significant role in our country's history uh, in the Battle of the Pacific. And at the same time, um, you know, I think just remain an engineering feat. And as far as I know, they were built mostly by local people. I'm sure they had a lot of different experts come in. But, you know, you talk about all the wonders in the world. To think that they could do that in the 40s with the technology being available then compared to what the kind of things we have today, pretty incredible. You know, so I'm, I'm a lot of confidence they're going to they're going to defuel, um, and they have the tankers, and they're set to go. Uh, fuel will be deployed in a number of different places. Uh, it's going to be a process, as they explained to us. You can't do it all at once. It's not like emptying out like a half gallon of milk. Mm -hmm. It's going to take it down to about ten feet, and then they've got to start to use different pumps for the remaining ten feet, and then it gets into sludge, which is at the absolute bottom. There's a different tactic for that, and a different. Uh, purpose for that. It's a very sophisticated effort. Uh, 14 of the 20 tanks have fuel in them. Not all do. So it's a matter of those 14 tanks. And, you know, it's all done on gravity. It's it's like if you can imagine um, you turning on water from a faucet, it, fall, it falls. It's it's like that. It's all gravity pulled. Uh, but they've got it figured out. And I'm, I'm I was really... Um, impressed with the fact that they were so open about it. There was nothing secretive. Uh, they wanted to convey to everybody in the room. They had great confidence in their plan, and this will get done and done well. You know, Mary, you've talked in the past about the collaboration between city and state when it comes to getting more folks off the street and into more permanent housing. I know that some of that was put on hold after the fires yeah. in Lahaina. Understandably, right. Understandably, right. But this week you took a meeting with the governor. Had a great meeting with the How governor. How did that go? We had a great meeting. We had a number of us from the city uh, involved with both the homeless situation and our housing initiatives. Uh, and so did the governor in the room. And we made it really clear to all of us at the table that, you know, we were past the stage of talking and thinking and even planning, if you will, and that we all kind of had a sense of what needed to be done, uh, especially with respect to um, the combination of the state's resources with the city's resources. So the short, easy uh, thing is that we have a capability with CORE, and we can expand on that to pick people up. Having that mobile crisis unit is really key. And we have facilities. We already own a couple of them. We're looking at some others for acquisition. Um, but the state has resources in the where we really need it with respect to not only monies, but resources in healthcare workers, psychiatric healthcare, all of that stuff. And so it's a combination of are working together collaboratively on a number of locations. So I, I, I think once we get this set up, if we were to think in terms of, I think the point in time count is 4,000 around. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a statewide number. But the plans we talked about today, um, I think we can probably get 1,000 people a year off the street. And I think within the next couple of years, we could, we could cut it in half once we get going. And we're not far from making that happen. This will be unprecedented. It'll be dramatic. The good news is that these people be afforded the kind of health care that they need. You know, I've talked long and hard about the profile of people who are on the streets. And for the most part, what we see out there are really veteran homeless people, houseless people who've been out there. More than half of them have been there for 10 years or more. 
and a very, very high percentage, if not all, are suffering from some form of addiction or mental illness. They need help. And that's really what, what can happen in these in these kinds of places is you can provide a lot of help. This is anything but a shelter. Um, this is a place where people can go and really be treated and hopefully get them into per- permanent supportive housing, which is if there was any magic words you'll hear from me on the road ahead, it's about permanent supportive housing uh, in the in reducing our homeless population on the streets, the things that make people uncomfortable, what feels unsafe, you know, and doing this in the most humane way we possibly can. I've said repeatedly, and I'll continue to say so, even though we've used police to do the cleanups, being homeless or houseless is not a crime. Um, but uh, but at the same time, we owe it to the general public to do everything we can. And I think, honestly, the city and state working together in this manner, we can really get it done. So what does that mean specifically for us? Does that mean, you know, expanding positions on our core team or pumping well, money yeah, into wraparound it, services? Yeah. Or well, what is what Well, right now we have about 30 people on our core team along with a couple of leaders, you know, and, and we kind of had Dr. Jim Ireland back into running core, which he's really the EMS guy, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it sort of happened that way. Um, and, you know, what's happened over the last couple of months, once we took over the Evil A uh, Resource Center and we turned it into respite care, about 75% of our people in order to provide 24-7 care for the 11 beds I believe we have filled in there have been taken off the street. So what we want to do is get back to a different model mm-hmm. and have our core personnel be in that dispatch mode, you know, really really taking the place of the calls that went to EMS mm-hmm. and HPD for that matter and HFD, our fire department. So, you know, this is, this is what we wanted to is it was the first leg of a strategy, we got a little bit off course, and we had a delay because, again, of, of Maui. Um, but I think, let me just say it another way. For me, and looking at what's in front of us, the next five years, zero to five, is like now. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we can't get things done fast enough. We've we've got some really big plans that we're going to be announcing shortly. Um, that we've discussed that it will make a dramatic difference, an unprecedented difference. Um, on, in the near-term road ahead. And I'm, I'm anxious to see that happen because for a long time, um, you know, our homeless population has sort of languished, if you will. You know, I mean, we've had successes here and there and a lot of good homeless service providers making good efforts, but you haven't really had the sense that we've taken a big bite out of homeless. It's just been there. It's been an ongoing problem for people. It's been in their faces. It's become more pervasive. It's gotten spread out in different neighborhoods. I think what we're about to do is going to create a market difference in what people see as far as people out in the streets. And then the sister issue, of course, with affordable housing. I know you recently attended the blessing um, for Hawking Hale in Chinatown, right? That historic district, the old bank building. What will that do? Well, it's going to activate downtown. You know, we want to bring an energy and a vibrancy down there. I believe they're... um, some 40, 40 units or so down there. We were one on Saturday morning on Bill 7 on Keynow right. Street. There's more on Born on One next week. You know, we've got 42 Bill 7 projects in the pipeline right now uh, with some of these developers. We've had to work through and engineer through laws and ordinances and a lot of different stuff. But, you know, we've put together a housing team now that didn't exist here. I think at best, the city and its involvement with housing, for me coming in, it was already complicated to begin with, was ambiguous at best because you could not look or cite 
any real significant accomplishments. They had made some acquisitions of, of random non-strategic buildings that, that wasn't really doing much of the way of any kind of housing. Um, what we've put together now and the things we've already been able to accomplish in just our first three years, getting the city back into private activity bonds for the first time in 25 years, affordable housing funds, distribution grants, what we're getting done uh, in conjunction with DPP and different things that we can to streamline everything, uh, not the least of which is working collectively and collaboratively with the developers in this town. Um, I think both is it, it's you know the future ahead is really good. Yeah, I think you can expect us to be talking about a lot of groundbreaking ceremonies going forward. We are on record, and our housing plan hasn't been published yet, but it's finished. We're on record of, of, of holding ourselves accountable over the next five plus years by the time we're finished at the end of the second term to have delivered 18,000 homes on our, on, our, on our watch. And at a minimum, even though I, th I say at a minimum, people tell me that's a stretch, but that's about 9,000 or so for sale, and the other will be rental units all in good key key locations. And one other thing I want to say about Bill 7 and Bill 1, which is the first piece of legislation we got passed, what's really great about that, it's really in the urban core. You know, the thing on Keenow Street's right across from Safeway, and on the other side of that is the bus line on mm -hmm. South Baratania. You know, being able to, in the urban core, take advantage of these lots, these lots that have been around for a long time with old buildings, many of which sometimes are not even rented right now, but the families hold on to it because of the equity value. You don't, take, you don't need a big lot. This lot that we looked at on Saturday looks pretty small, yet they're going to put 25 units in there, 22 studios and three one-bedrooms, and they'll have it finished and probably by June. I mean, this is uh, there's room for a lot of that. So we, we removed that ghetto-like or that ghetto-looking like places in the middle of the urban core that just, we've all seen them. In fact, I lived in one when I went to graduate school in 1971. Three-story walk-up cement block buildings that were built in the 50s and maybe even the late 40s after the war and um, and bringing a different revitalization. And and the, the thing that's great about them, and the reason why we can even talk about this one being ready by June, is all the infrastructures in place, mm -hmm. all the sewer, all the water, electrical, all those things that really in any kind of development require a lot of investment and take a lot of time. This is a really good opportunity for us. Uh, I want to step back and get a little more global. It's heartbreaking to watch what's going on in Gaza. You recently attended a vigil for Israel. If you could share what that was like for you. You know, you're right. Heartbreaking is the word. Disbelief is another. I mean, we're living in a world right now between Ukraine, that war, and, and, and what's happening in Gaza and actually the invasion of Gaza and what is yet to even happen based on what the Israelis say they're going to do. And we've seen ample evidence of their capability and, and, and the potential even of this getting bigger is a very frightening thing. So um, it's been hard to watch the video and, and the updated stories. I feel compelled to do so, but boy, the stories coming out of there and the scenes that you see, it's just really, this is man's inhumanity, man's inhumanity to man on full display. The vigil as a result was very moving. Um, you know, I don't go to a synagogue very often. It's my second time. Um, and some of the music that was played and songs that were sung and the narratives that were spoken from various excerpts, it, it wasn't religious per se. It was, um, it was about the plight of a people and, and the suffering. And, um, 
And then the one account that was really riveting was one of the men got up there whose family still lives in Israel. It was talking about his texting while while the um, while the militia was in there shooting people in fear and they were texting him. He was, and he was felt like he was saying goodbye to his sister. They all survived. Not sure how. In fact, that seems to be what some people have said. The ones who survived are not quite sure how they survived. They'd gone to safe rooms in different places, but that didn't make a difference in some cases, but these people did. But his account of some of the people that he lost on a first-person basis um, just brought it home, made it very, very real. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, you know while in the news business, Brandy, for a long time. So it's one thing to watch it on the news and, and follow some different things. When you hear somebody on a first-hand account who was really in deep sorrow talking about it, it was very moving, very moving. Hono Uli Uli, that National Historic Site, um, was mm-hmm. also in the newspaper this week, uh, recently received a, a new plaque. Yeah. Why, why was that so important? Well, you know, they've made it a national park now. It's a historic site. I want to thank the folks from Bear, probably Monsanto, uh, who own the land and now have dedicated it over. And we had the park rangers there. This is a bad chapter in the history of America, the Japanese internment camps. And I spoke last week at the ceremony, and I said, you know, I grew up as a baby boomer. My father came home from the war in 45. I was born 10 months later in 46. And um, I grew up. Not so much my dad, because he was a quiet guy, but all my uncles, they all, I came from a big Italian family, both my mother's side and my father's side. So I had lots of uncles. All of those men fought in World War II. And at different times, you heard about it because it was transformative. They were all about the same age. These were young people who went into the war at the age of 18 and 19, you know, and so it really molded them. And so we hear about it. Most of them would never tell you about their personal exploits. But anyway, the point is, I heard a lot about World War II growing up as a kid. And, um, I never heard about the internment camps. I learned about the internment camps when I came here to Hawaii when I was 18 years old in 1965. As I began to live and love, if you will, among our local people and learning about that, it seemed incomprehensible. In fact, even last week when I was sitting here thinking about thinking about local families and there was and and how they could have come and and, and had them do that. The kinds of people who live here in Hawaii punishing, punishing undeserved punishment. Somehow, miraculously, they survived, but really a bad chapter and had, you know, lasting scars. It, was a, and it wasn't just a few people. This is 4,000 people when all was said and done. They also used it as a prison. It wasn't exclusively Japanese-Americans. They had Italian war, Italian war criminals here or, or captives. I, I didn't even know that, that they, they uh, were capturing um, guys in the Italian army, and they sent them all the way to Hawaii to be in, in prison. But... Um, that as it may, it was mostly Japanese-American, local people, uh, many of whom uh, had family who wouldn't fight in World War II. It was just, I, I, it's hard to, hard to imagine that that happened. So anyway, this site is there to remind all of us, never again. So it's hallowed ground. It's hallowed ground for the people who sacrificed and went through so much there and in that memory and respect for all that they gave up for, for really for our country, if you will, because they continue to be Americans. And um, it's just, that's what it was about. Very, very respectful moment. The funeral service for UH head football coach Bob Wagner was this week. Yeah. Can you tell me what that man meant to you? Well, you know, I, um, 
I knew Bobby from the time he was a grad assistant. He was the last coach I was involved in hiring. Met him through Dom Capers. He was on Don James' staff up at the University of Washington. And after spring ball, Dom and I went up there. Um, we went up there for uh, what well, we'd do a tutorial. We used to you know visit different staffs, spend a week with them, learn how they would what they were doing. Don James was a really outstanding football coach at the University of Washington. He succeeded Jim Owens, who I'd uh, had coached against, but he was sort of had yet to make his reputation, but came out of Kent State with a great reputation uh, and then really went on and really made it big at the University of Washington. Um, so Wags was there and he was a young guy like we all were. I wasn't much older. I'm only a year older. Uh, I was just a little bit further ahead in, in my coaching background and Capers really liked him. I, I knew Dom was a great coach and, you know, Dom went on to be the head coach of two expansion NFL teams, the only guys in history, the head coach of the Carolina Panthers and the Houston Texans, was with Green Bay and Michael McCarthy for a long time uh, as the defensive coordinator and still coaching. Dom is still coaching with the Denver Broncos these days. So amazing guy, but we're all young men, all about the same age. And... Wags needed an opportunity, and we needed a good football coach, and so we brought him here to Hawaii, and he went on, and I left coaching, and he went on, and then was a really good defensive backfield coach, then became a defensive coordinator, and he's in the annals. Uh, they recorded all of this as far as the longevity of defensive coordinators for all that was said about his head coaching background and his years and his total 19-year history of coaching UH. He was the number one defensive coordinator. A lot of people don't talk about that. They, they have him highly ranked second all-time head football coach, but... Um, um, I've had quite a legacy. I, I, I'm still having a hard time processing a peer and somebody I know who died um, like that because uh, Wags is always so full of life. He was just a, kind of that kind of guy. Great memory. He had a great career. His wife, Gloria, they've been together all these years. I know when they were young sweethearts, so it makes <laughs> me feel. And their daughter, Christy, is really outstanding. So um, sad, sad, but uh, Bobby's legacy will live on. When was the last time you talked to him? Last summer. We had a thing at uh, Elmore Beach Park. I forget what it was, who put it together. We all went down there and um, and I uh, saw him. And, you know, because he'd been living, you know, on the Big Island for a lot of years and didn't see him very much. But, you know, it's just one, you know, there's that kind of bond. I think, you know, we all kind of have that with friends we had a long time ago. Um, you may not see them in years and all of a sudden you walk into them and you pick up like, Time has never passed. Time never passed. Well, Mayor, this week also marked Boss's Day. Who is your favorite boss to work for? My favorite boss to work for? Well, Scott Humber. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think of the people that push me around this place over here, right? This is, he's sitting within the airshot. Uh, you know, I still go back, since we're talking about football, Larry Price had a huge influence on me as a young assistant football coach. Mm -hmm. And then the opportunities he afforded me when he got promoted to head coach and whatever, I just learned a lot during those years, you know, when I was coaching with him. And those were formative years of my life, uh, 25 through 30, those six seasons. And um, uh, even though it wasn't in the broadcast world and certainly not in the government world, um, I think from a developmental standpoint, his influence on me was incredible. I, I had some really good people in broadcast. I would be remiss if I didn't mention one guy, Eric Bremner when I went to King TV in Seattle, but before that, because King bought KHNL in the old days in 1984, I worked for them for a number of years before they asked me to go up to Seattle to run the flagship. 
he was a really decent guy. And he, he, even though we weren't in the news business at that time, did a lot to teach me about television news and, and its importance for local stations because King was really so highly regarded. Um, he was a good, really good mentor. Um, but Larry was my boss. Larry yeah. was a guy who kicked my butt and got me straight about um, the things and the responsibility and, and how you had to handle that stuff. So, yeah. Well, Mayor, this is the one Oahu podcast. So for one final thought. Well, I think that, um, you know, it's been hard between the Maui fires and now this incredible situation in Israel and Gaza. Um, and looking at that, it's hard, to, it's, it's hard to imagine, but we're so focused on the positive here, as we talked about today, about work that we're doing with the homeless, our priority in housing, knowing full well how much it means, it means to people who live here, and all the other stuff we're dealing with in the city. So I just would say we should all feel blessed. We get to call Hawaii home. We're all in this together. All of us are responsible together to make this the best place we could ever live in. And so I really feel... Um, I feel really good about our team and the momentum we have and what we're going to create. And I just want everybody to um, realize that, that despite the craziness in the world right now, we're focused on the good and we're going to deliver on it. Mayor, thank you for your time. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week as we talk golf. We'll sit down with two from our golf division. So you have a question about city golf courses or booking tee times, be sure to send in your podcast questions at oneoahu.org slash podcast. And until next time, aloha. Aloha.